Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that looks at the latest trends in motoring and transport for serious and not-so-serious issues. I'm David Brown, and in this program we have new stories including a couple of concepts and a practical car from the Chicago Motor Show. In our feature item, we talk to an Australian company that has done research that shows a shift in attitudes to finance and funding cars in the younger generations that could favour car subscriptions rather than outright ownership. We continue our look at pedestrian controls at traffic lights and hear some of the history of the many things that have been tried to get a better solution. And Brian Smith again talks about what Elon Musk is saying versus the need to understand all the nuances of autonomous motoring. You can find previous programs at drivenmedia.com.au or as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or there's our Facebook page, Overdrive City Driven Media. So let's get the program on the way. First, the news. The Chicago Motor Show has shown up a few interesting vehicles soon to be on the market and a couple of concept cars, one that reflects the past and one that reflects the future. The Nissan Proto concept was first revealed late last year, but now makes it for the first time to a US motor show. Nissan note that it's not a production vehicle at this stage, but it is clearly a derivative of their 370Z. Contrary to most design trends, the Proto has a very smooth design finish, without the angles, creases, pods and huge grills that festoon many modern cars. It has a twin-turbo V6 engine and a manual gearbox, so it carries on the Z tradition rather than the quest for electrification. Unlike the Nissan Proto, the Toyota Rhombus concept is squarely aimed at a changing world and is not in the style of current vehicles. The exterior looks like something from the wacky races. There are huge pods at the front and back that protrude out like the cheeks of trumpet player Dizzy Gillespie. The windscreen starts nearly at the front of the vehicle and bulges back to an A-pillar, which is in line with the steering wheel which in itself is in the centre of the car, making only one front seat, obviously for the driver. The main body has an elongated oval shape, so there is only one seat at the very back, but two small seats in the middle, facing inward, creating a lounge room pit-style area. Toyota said it plans to roll out more than 10 battery electric vehicle models, globally in the next five or six years, with a sales target of more than 5.5 million electrified vehicles worldwide by 2030. But Toyota has shown a practical car as well that will soon be on the market. It's the Corolla Cross, a blend of the styling of a RAV4 with the utility of a crossover and the size of a compact car. The new Corolla Cross is based on the current Corolla, but adds a higher riding suspension, optional all-wheel drive, and a four-wheel wagon body style. The second edition of Your Melbourne, a competition that challenges students to conceptualise their vision for the City of Melbourne in the year 2030, has been launched by BMW Group Australia and RMIT University. It has expanded its scope, 
Previously, Your Melbourne was opened exclusively to high school students, but for 2021, the competition will be open to pre- and postgraduate students from the initiative's partner university, RMIT. Further details will be announced on the competition micro site, which can be accessed via bmw.com.au forward slash your Melbourne, one word. And finally, the Grattan Institute has released the first of a series of reports recommending policies for the transport sector to reach net zero emissions. Despite specific goals set by the states and a general preference expressed by the federal government, Australia is not on track to hit a net zero result by 2050. Transport was responsible for 18% of Australia's emissions in 2020. We hit 101 million tonnes of emissions in 2019, but dropped back to 94 million tonnes in 2020 due to reduced travel as a result of COVID. Grattan says that the best way to reduce emissions in every sector in an economically efficient way would be to introduce a single economic-wide emissions price coupled with support for technology development and removing non-price barriers. However, as this is not politically acceptable, the next best way to cut transport emissions is to switch to zero emission vehicles, mainly battery electric vehicles, for the light vehicle fleet. Recommendations from this first report include mandatory fleet standards, scrap import and stamp duty on electric vehicles, and also scrap the luxury vehicle tax on EVs for the next 10 years. Set standards for requiring charging in new off-street parking facilities, and more surprisingly, increase the truck width limit in Australia from 2.5 to 2.6 metres to ensure any zero-emission heavy vehicles made for the EU or US markets can be used in Australia without expensive modifications. And that has been the news. New technologies have been evolving and then the suddenness of COVID has shown us that people will rearrange their priorities and the manner in which they go about doing them. Now, Lupert is an Australian company that produces software to run car subscription services, a different way to have access to a car rather than buying it outright. They have conducted some research that indicates a generational shift in how Australians are managing their money from financial investments to car ownership. Now, Michael Higgins is the co-founder and managing director of Lupert, and he joins us on the line. G'day, Michael. Hey, David. Thanks for having me. Lupert, how did you get that name? Lupert is essentially our way of saying um, keeping our clients in the loop. And so subscription is all about uh, an ongoing relationship as opposed to a one-off sale. And so Lupert is about, uh, I guess, an ongoing loop and a relationship. Well, car companies have strived to move away from I'll see you once every five years to how can I interact with you. This does it on a much more detailed way. Now, in the past, car ownership was, in many cases, taken as a given, the best way to get what is seen as an essential service. In what way are the younger generations taking a wider view on how they spend their money? There's a whole bunch of ways that uh, the younger generation are managing their money slightly differently. So currently, uh, with a record high real estate prices uh, and the low interest rates, we're seeing that, pe- that younger people are looking to manage their money differently. 
often more aggressively for things like cryptocurrency and the stock market. And as such, they're not as interested in having their money set aside, tied up in a devaluing asset like a car. So what car subscription, for example, allows them to do is they pay just a weekly payment, but their big bulk of money that they would normally spend and have tied up is investing elsewhere. So it's not a case that it might cost them less. It's just that when they have their money and when they have it available to do other things with. Exactly right. We have seen car ownership as predicted by factors such as or predicated by factors directly related to the vehicle, styles, status, practicality, whether you're a rev head might be part of it. There are broader indicators now on who will lead and who will embrace these other forms of transport. Well, it's quite interesting. So we've done a survey and it, we were very surprised with how people investing in their money dictates not just their type of ownership, but also what types of vehicles they will move towards. So we're seeing a very direct link, an overwhelming link actually, between those who invest their money outside of their primary home and electric vehicles, for example. If I'm interested in electric vehicles, that's indicated not by the 0 to 100 kilometre an hour acceleration as much as it might be of how other factors rather than just the ones related to the car. The 0 to 100 on most EVs doesn't seem to be too bad either. <laughs> I'm not giving up one in order to get the other. That's right. A subscription service is providing access rather than ownership to a car or cars. What does a subscription service look like? How would I use it? A national network of companies, car dealerships, for example, but also independent providers. And so you can go to them and it allows you to get a car subscription. So a subscription allows you to get behind the wheel through small weekly payments, but you don't have any long-term contracts. So there's no interest, no balloon payments, and all the costs are included like registration, insurance, and servicing. So Essentially, there's no surprises there. So this means that uh, you can return the car if you no longer want it. You can change the car if you're having more children, for example, or if you just like a sports car for a few months. It's essentially infinitely flexible to suit the lifestyle and your wants and needs at that time, as opposed to, say, being locked into a five-year period or having to buy and sell every time you'd like a change. The buying and selling is a great trauma to many people. (laughs) I think understandably so. You only provide the software, don't you? So we provide the software for the majority of car subscription providers in Australia. And so they essentially allow you to take which car you'd like and win. And we provide the back end so that they have the ability to do it in a, in a clean, smooth, uh, cost-effective way. Are there many out there? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, let's say there's uh, over 50 at the moment, different providers. And when I say 50... That would be over 50 plus all the locations that each one has. So it'd be in the hundreds. I just wonder what might be a indicative price if I were to buy a Hyundai i30, not buy, sorry, were to subscribe to initially, say, a Hyundai i30. Have you any idea? Is there a typical sort of indicative cost? From what we see, it can be from about $119 a week. Right. So this is bringing a reality to the real costs of cars? Is that one of the impacts you think it'll have? Exactly right. It brings a consistency. And so there's just no surprises. The big scary thing is people 
perhaps they wouldn't remember to budget for that one-time one, uh, one year registration renewal. Or often, the registration renewal and insurance will both come at once. How quickly can I swap? The classic of bringing about efficiency might well be that if I have a, a week away or maybe even a weekend, I might take a different vehicle. The classic is the belief, I don't know that it's a reality all that often, that I might travel a long distance. Can I swap for a weekend? Yes, yeah, absolutely you can. So different pro- different providers will have different um, options, but yes, absolutely. The idea is that you can swap for a weekend if you want to, or you can do longer periods. It's really up to you. It's quite common, for example, that you're seeing at the moment that there's such a little stock in the new car market that people are waiting six or nine months for a RAV4. Hmm. And so it's kind of going, well, what do I do in, in between now and that time coming? Well, subscription allows you to have a vehicle for that time until your new vehicle does come. Are the companies doing some research on those that have used the system and their reaction to it? We found that people will often swap a lot early on or they'll swap for uh, special occasions, specific scenarios. Is that part and parcel of changing our attitude to the, the car which was once part of the family, but is now becoming more more white goods even. I would agree with that, yeah. It's about usership instead of ownership. That's what we're seeing a link between, especially with the younger generation coming up. Generation before, perhaps you might buy a DVD, for example, or a VCR or VHS or whatever it may be. Whereas this current generation has been brought up on Netflix, where it's a monthly, a monthly subscription. And they get to use as much as they like in that time. Now, if they don't like it, they'll cancel Netflix next month. Dealerships have been the main people that are, are running this sort of service in Australia? I would say it's about half-half. I'd say it's about half-half. This would be a great way of having a feel for a car for a while. This is a way of being able to become familiar with a model? Yes. Well, so some end consumers do view it as a kind of extended test model. So they might... Test drive. So they might try one model for a month and then try another model for a month and then decide at the end whether they want to subscribe continuously or they buy one of the two that they decided. It's an Australian company? Yes, absolutely, 100% Australian company. Have you looked to taking it overseas? Yeah, absolutely. So we will be launching uh, in the UK, uh, United Kingdom, uh, l- later in the year. And we're already in New Zealand today as well. Good luck in the future and thank you for your time. Great. Thank you, David. And that's Michael Higgins, the co-founder and managing director of Loopit, a subscription company, but also they have their own arm as well that can get you into the car you need or you want at the right car at the particular time. This is Overdrive across Australia. From very early childhood education, we look. <clears throat> Sorry, from very early childhood education, we learn the reality of the green, amber, red traffic signals. But it's also, of course, symbolic of uh, the three stages you might consider in approaching any situation, and it has been applied in advertising and indeed even in psychology of helping people cope with moods. But uh, what does it mean in terms of traffic lights and indeed in terms of pedestrian lights? On the line is Graham, who has a background in understanding these issues 
and uh, the development of them over many, many years. Good day, Graham. Uh, good day, David. The traffic lights for pedestrians, we don't give them green, amber, red, should we? Well, it could be an improvement on the, the red and green that we use because it does cause a lot of confusion to many, many pedestrians out there in the wider world. It's a flashing red, and red is a colour of caution, isn't it? Yeah, the red is a warning in our culture. Um, when when Western-style traffic lights were introduced to China some decades ago, there was a, there was a cultural problem that red in China celebrates many things, and it, it um, generically stands for a great leap forward is one of its meanings. So um, a red light in China initially didn't go down too well. That's an importance of consistency, isn't it? I hop in and out of a different car every week and find that getting used to the different way they do things can be cumbersome, distracting and perhaps even dangerous. Yes, even on computers and car dashboards, a red light is a warning of something. A green light is it's pretty good. It's your right to go. Why did we only then have two options, a red or a green, and we might vary that by flashing them, why did we not just go to the standard three? Were we saving money? No, the answer is back in history. I'll give you a little rundown on traffic lights in New South Wales. The first set was switched on on the 13th of October 1933, and it was built just for traffic on the road. They didn't consider pedestrians at all. Uh, then in on the 13th of February 1939, uh, the first push button was added to traffic lights in in New South Wales, and uh, it was actually two sites at once, both on Paramount Road at Flood Street, uh, Petersham area, and at Sloan Street, Summer Hill. Now, that was a great invention, and it was um, covered by the newspapers of the day as quite a, quite a feat. And so, 41, we actually get something that says in white, you can cross now. That's right. Okay, then the next development is 1959. Lights were introduced with the walk and don't walk wording on them. The, the walk was in green and the don't walk was in red. And that was uh, installed on the Pacific Highway at St. Leonard's. Now, that, um, what had been adopted there had become fairly common in the United States. So we weren't following British um, standards as most traffic systems had prior, but we took off the, with the American system. When we brought in walk and don't walk, there was no flashing. There was just, if you got halfway across and it suddenly turned to don't walk, you probably felt guilty or did something silly. That's right. It um, was just a two, two signal messages to you, walk or don't walk, one or the other. No flashing, just sitting stationary. So if you were halfway the, across the road, you've got this uh, red sign saying don't walk. I don't know how to ask this question uh, without being misunderstood. When did we get flashing? The flashing came along just two years later in 1961 and it, the first ones were installed at uh, Crow's Nest. So to make such a quick change, I suspect they knew they had problems near the start of the, um, the don't walk, which didn't flash. Ah, so experience said, hang on, we've got to go further. Mm. We're now getting flashing, and was that well accepted, do you think? It was, but um, many people were confused from the start by the meaning of the flashing don't walk. 
So we had lots of people saying they just don't have long enough to get across the road. What happened in Melbourne? In Melbourne, their first traffic control intersection didn't use lights, as we always did in New South Wales. They used a giant, uh, like a clock dial, which had a motor-driven arrow rotating around the 360 degrees. And there were different parts of the the circle gave time to the different uh, roads approaching the intersection. So you might have 30 seconds to one road and the next 30 seconds to the other road. And the motorist looked at this big uh, coloured dial to see if they could go or if they had to stop. So it was traffic control signals but not traffic lights. Do you know if that lasted long in Melbourne? Yeah, it was there for some decades. It's it's now preserved in a museum in Melbourne. Uh, I think it's called Marshall Light. <laughs> Another interesting development was there was a year when we were focusing on access for the disabled. The next development in our technology was for disabled users in wheelchairs crossing at traffic lights. I think it was brought about because it was the International Year of Accessibility Improvements for the Disabled. And we knew that some people in wheelchairs with limited limb mobility found it difficult to press the push button to cross at traffic lights. To reach it, I suppose. Reaching it was a problem? Reaching it was a problem for uh because it was not at the best height for them. And also to get the wheelchair up to the post where the button was, they'd have to uh, put their wheelchair on the curb ramp, which runs down onto the road, and that was unstable, or they'd have to turn their wheelchair sideways to the direction they actually wanted to move uh, to get their hand close up to the button. Because with the foot rests and that protruding out the front of the wheelchair, they couldn't reach out far enough to get the button normally. People started suggesting that we give residents of nearby nursing homes a special radio control button, a bit like a TV remote control, that they could use to extend the crossing time. That's one of the dreams of every traffic engineer and I think person in the in the city, that they have a button they can press that changes the lights to their advantage. It can't work, of course, for you can't have everyone having one of those, but did that last for a long time? Did they allow that to happen and did it produce good results? No, I, I didn't see the report on it and I think it was slowly forgotten. Pedestrian volumes may be significantly higher than the vehicle volumes. Yes, yeah. Um, There's another good example of that in going back some decades ago. The traffic lights were optimised for all the the vehicle traffic, the cars and trucks and buses and taxis, whatever, uh, and people thought it was running quite well. But then they thought about it and thought, well, there's actually hundreds of pedestrians crossing here almost every minute. So they factored in the pedestrians' waiting time and thought, gee, we're, we haven't got it right. We really need to change all the vehicle timings because we were counting 100 pedestrians the same way as one pedestrian. So one pedestrian waiting 30 seconds is not much, but 100 pedestrians waiting 30 seconds is, you know, 50 lost minutes. Yep. Indeed, that gives us a focus not on what our historical perspective is, but what the reality is at the moment. That's right. So it, it made a lot of difference to the um, efficiency of the intersection by not just basing it on vehicles, 
Graeme, thank you very much for your time. I, I appreciate that greatly. This is Overdrive across Australia. Hyundai Palisade is another alternative for transporting a family around. We drove the seven-seat top-spec Highlander version and really enjoyed it. Palisade is big, yet well-proportioned with dynamics and quietness that belies its size, and will comfortably fit the family and luggage for that holiday or trip away to the snow. Palisade is powered by a 2.2-litre diesel engine, produces 147 kilowatts and 440 newton metres, driving through an all-wheel drive system and a smooth eight-speed sports automatic transmission. This is a well-tested and practical configuration that's easy to drive with enough oomph when needed. Inside it is spacious and has a premium feel to the cabin. The driver's seat is very comfortable with multiple adjustments and you can simply ease into drive mode. The ride is smooth, handling is good for a family wagon and you can drive for hours feeling quite relaxed. As you would expect, it is packed with all the safety, comfort and luxury features. Pricing is a touch under $75,000 for the 2.2 litre Highlander plus the usual costs. It's getting a bit pricey, but you get a lot for your money. I'm Rob Fraser. This is Overdrive across Australia. And we're at the end of the program. And finally, uh, to talk about some quirky news, we have on the line Brian Smith. G'day, Brian. What's Elon up to? In 2019, he actually said that a year from now, there would be over a million cars with full self-driving software, everything. Well, very recently, he's uh, backtracked like crazy on that. He's actually uh, tweeted that uh, generalized self-driving is a hard problem as it requires solving a large part of real-world AI. Didn't expect it to be so hard but the difficulty is obvious in retrospect. Uh, 2020 hindsight. <laughs> Musk is the king of over-promising and under-delivering, and uh, it looks like he's, he's kind of um, backing away from the full autonomy idea. Do you think, though, that people have accepted his hype? It's an interesting um, survey, David, that uh, in the US where people's uh, attitudes towards autonomous vehicles were tested, and uh, more than a third of U.S. citizens said they would prefer to swim with sharks rather than ride in an autonomous vehicle today. <laughs> half of the people who responded to this, a thousand people who surveyed, half said that they plan to eventually own an autonomous vehicle, which, which suggests to me that they, they just don't think they're ready yet, that they're, um, you know, they're interested in the idea, but not yet. And I, I, I think the fires and the the uh, crashes of the Teslas are, are not helping. I don't know if you saw one just quite recently, David, where um, you know the the American uh, police were called when a Tesla was just driving itself around on fire <laughs> in the states. So the vehicle just burst into flames and then then just drove around for a while and um, until it uh, until it stops. Yeah, I think there's quite a lot of work to be done in that space between. AI and human capability, mm. that interface around, you know, at what point um, do you in, involve yourself? So, so Tesla cleverly says, look, you know, our, our autopilot systems are safe, but you need to have input. Mm. I just find the word autopilot then to be just a tad contradictory. Well, do you remember the old days, David, when uh, um, you know cruise control was introduced, and yeah. you had there's possibly apocryphal stories about the 
people setting the cruise control on their camper van and then going into the back to make a cup of tea. (laughs) (laughs) The same sort of thing, perhaps. You never know. All right, Brian, lovely to talk to you again. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. Brian Smith, a technical expert, but also an astute observer. You're listening to Overdrive. With increasing COVID restrictions and changes in consumer buying behaviour, delivery vans like the LDV G10 have been a huge success. They've just released their G10 Plus van, which brings additional refinements to its light commercial range. It's powered by an economical 2-litre diesel engine, which is also found in their T60 Trail Rider Ute. It uses just 8.2 litres per 100 k's and has a new 8-speed ZF automatic gearbox. Inside, the dashboard and ergonomics have been updated with new rotary gear selector, new material finishes and improved NVH levels, making for a more relaxed drive experience. There's a 5.2 cubic metre cargo area, a payload of 1,093 kilograms. There's easy access with two sliding doors as standard, plus a rear lift tailgate. There are multiple low tie-down points, a tough floor cover, along with four interior lights and integrated side steps on each side. It's priced from a tad under $33,000 for ABN holders, and the G10 is excellent value. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Michael Higgins, Graham Patterson, Brian Smith, Rob Fraser and Paul Just for their great help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Past programs are available at drivenmedia.com.au or as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or there's always our Facebook site, Overdrive City on which we have some of the pictures from the Chicago Motor Show, including those mentioned in the news, and a BMW that has a front grille that best resembles a smiling Bugs Bunny. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.